Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come and look at your at the Word and ask you to guide and show us what you would want us to see from all of this. We ask your Spirit to be with us and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Samuel chapter 12. In chapter 11, we covered the sin of David with uh, Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah and Joab's uh, complicity in that murder. <laughs> Knowing what, knowing what he was doing. And at this point, David is married Bathsheba and thinking that he got away with it. And so we're going to look at this from there at that point. Verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said to him, There were two men in the city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb that he brought and bought and nourished up and grew together with him and with his children and did eat with his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, that man hath, the man that hath done this shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your servant's house and your servant's wives unto your bosom. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were not too li- if that were too little, I would have moreover given you unto you such and such things. Wherefore have you done despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I'm going to stop there. This is Nathan coming to challenge David. David is thinking he's gotten away with this. We get to the end of the chapter. We're going to see that it's been at least nine months because the child's been born before this has happened and possibly close to a year. So we're somewhere between nine months to a year since he's uh, taken Bathsheba and, ex- and had uh, Uriah killed. So a long time frame is, has happened on this. And at this point, David's thinking, hey, I got away with it. Nobody knows. God, God knows. God knows, and he's going to challenge him on it. So we see in verse 1, the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to David, and Nathan gives him a little story. All right? Nathan doesn't go into David's face and just say, you know, hey, David, you sinned, you're, you're, you're in trouble. He gets David very much emotionally involved in a story. And God does this with us frequently. When we get to, into the word or into a message, we'll get emotionally involved in the story, and then all of a sudden the spirit will hit us with, this is for you. Uh, this, is, this is yours. And, and David is going to look at this, and he says there's two rich men and one in a poor a poor man. The rich man had great flocks and a herd. The poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb and he bought it and nourished it and grew up together with him and with his children did eat his meat and drink of his cup and lay in his bosom was to him as a daughter. So here he goes, you know, there's two men. 
One's very rich, the other one's poor. And this poor man, he has just a little female lamb, just a little female lamb, one little lamb, buys it as a lamb and treats it. If you pick, the, pick up on this, it says he treats it as a pet. Right? He eats off, that, off of his table, he's drinking out of his cup, he's being raised with his, with his kids. In our day and age, we'd say that it was the puppy being raised by the, as, as the family, family pet. And this lamb was not the lamb out in the, out in the, out in the, out in the uh, flock. This was literally being raised as a pet. Now you can picture David as a shepherd probably had some lambs like that in his lifetime. That he just loved that lamb and treated it very special. It was not, it was not a flock lamb. It was his, his little pet. But David is being shown the, the full complicity of what he's done. You know, David is justifying himself. Well, I like that woman. I, I, you know, she got pregnant. I had to take care of that situation, and I didn't want her to die. I didn't want to die, so I had to do something. How many times do we justify our activities and think we're okay? Well, you know, God, I just I had no other choice. And one of the things that really bugged me is when people give an apology, and their apology includes, well, I had no choice, or I just had to do this. No, you chose to do it. Make sure you get this correct in your mind. And this is where David is being drawn into. The story that God has given Nathan to give David is one to draw him in. David still at his heart is a shepherd. Yeah, he's, had, he's had these pet lambs. He's had something. He's had this pet that now. And so and he goes, this traveler came to the rich man, and the rich man didn't want to take his own lamb and killed the poor man's. Now David's really upset. You, you killed the man's pet. Not only was it just a, a lamb, he goes, David understood this was a pet. This was not just a lamb in the flock. This was just not a lamb. This lamb was, had run of the house. It was being raised with the kids. It was being fed from the table. He fed, you know, he gave it the drink, you know, and I, I really do. I picture the, the really pet lovers, that their dog is sitting there at the table, being fed the scraps off the table, you know, being, being uh, poured, poured, the, poured the water out, out of their cup, you know, it's uh, being played with, being raised with the family. And David gets a little irritated with this. Uh, he gets greatly kindled, as a matter of fact. And he says, this man deserves to die. Now, the problem with this is the penalty for stealing a lamb or any animal was not death. All right? David is getting extremely upset and is going way beyond what the law said. In Exodus 22.1, the penalty for the stealing and the killing of an animal is that you'd pay back five times what you took. So if you took a lamb, you were to pay back five lambs, or the equivalent in money. If you killed the cow, you were to give back five cows, and so on. There was a penalty of five for one. That is the penalty for what this is. And David gets so irate, he says, this man deserves to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's done worse on, on this. No, in this story, no. This this is just this is da this is the picture of David and Uriah. This is just a parable saying, you know, hey David, uh, there's this rich man, he had lots of stuff, and there's this poor man, he only had one thing. So it's just made up. It's a made up story. This isn't even a real story. This is just this story was designed to get David emotionally involved with the story. It's, it's something that definitely could happen, but the story was literally to get David emotionally involved. 
So because if Nathan had come and said, David, it was wrong of you to go after, after Uriah's you know, yeah. wife and, and to murder Uriah, it probably wouldn't have gone over well with David. All right? David would have just said, you know, who are you to speak to the king that way and, and thrown him into prison or something, you know, quite likely. It was just a story yeah. designed to get David emotionally involved in this. Because like I said, if Nathan had come in and David, you know, you're a sinner, you, you committed adultery and, and murder, David would not have listened to him. All right. So this story was designed, David, you, you love sheep, you know what it means to have a, a pet lamb, you know, you were poor at one time, you know what it's like to have lost your, your you know, you, would, you really know what would have, what, how you would have felt if somebody had taken your lamb. So David gets angry and his anger goes so far as saying, this guy deserves to die. Now that's not the penalty for stealing and killing a lamb. At this point, he doesn't know it's a story. David thinks it's real, he's the judge. He's the, he's the Supreme Court, so as far as he's concerned, Nathan's bringing him a real story, looking for a real judgment. And David gets emotionally involved. You know, this man deserves to die. Now, he's way beyond what the law says. But this is how emotionally involved he is. You stole that man's pet, this guy, this guy, whoever this rich man is, deserves to die. Then, then he walks it back a little bit in, in, the sec, in verse 6. He goes, well, he deserves to pay him four times what he took. He's still not following the law. The law says he owes him five times what he took. Because that's what Exodus 21, uh, 22 verse 1 says. All right? So David is way too extreme. Then he's being lenient on the poor guy. So David's all over and it's because he is emotional. How many times do we say stupid things when we are emotional? We know better and we say and do things that are totally wrong and we go way off and overboard and then maybe we come back and we go way under because we're all over the place because our emotions are involved. This is where David's at. You know, and David is upset. He goes, oh, this guy deserves to die. Oh, well, maybe he doesn't deserve to die and, you know, we'll just walk this back. He's going to owe him four times what, you know, four times what he took instead of five times like the law says. So David's kind of walked back and then Nathan gives him the real powerful story. You are the man. All right? David is emotionally involved with this. And David says, by the way, David, you're the rich man. And David is going to be cut to the heart because of this. It, like I said, if Nathan had just come in and said, David, you, are, you have murdered Uriah and you have taken his wife of an adultery, you are, you are a terrible sinner, David probably would not have responded. Most likely. Otherwise, God would not have had him approach this way. He might have chopped his head off. He might have chopped Nathan's head off. At the very least, probably thrown him in prison. Yeah. All right? So God sends him to say, well, you get, Dave, you get him you know, personally involved with this story. Much like jo uh, Joseph did with his brothers. He could have just said, hey, brothers, have you, have you uh, repented and changed your mind? They would have said, of course we have. You know, David, you know, Joseph, you're, you're our brother. You're, you're in charge. Uh, you might just cut our heads off. Uh, yeah, of course we're repented. But he puts them through a whole lot of tests to say, have they really repented without knowing who he is? And this happens frequently with God. God says, I, I want you to prove that you, that you have changed. We want to prove that you are who you are. And he gives us these opportunities in our lifetime as he puts us in places and says, are you going to do what's right or are you going to do what's wrong? 
And then he brings us to the place where we're repentant. And the question is always, are we repented because we are repenting? Or are we repenting and making it look like we're repenting because we got caught? And that was a question I asked my kids frequently. Are you really sorry or are you sorry you got caught? Most of the time we're sorry we got caught. And that's what David might have done. David might have repented disgenuously if, if Nathan had come to him and said, David, you, you have sinned and you, you have killed a man and, and taken Bathsheba. He might, you know, he could have executed, he could have put him in jail, or he could have even said, well, I, I'm sorry, but not meant it. Here he's emotionally involved, and, he's, and when Nathan says, David, you're the man, David really now understands what he's done. He hasn't just taken a man's wife. He hasn't just executed a man. And David at this point is justifying. He hasn't executed Uriah in his mind. He's just arranged for the battle to do it. When Joab sends a message saying, you know, hey, this man died, he goes, oh, that's the, that's the way, that's the fortunes of war. You know, people, people die. He made him understand what he had done. Not necessarily framed, he just made him understand. David, this is the extreme of what you've done. Joab knew that David was trying to kill him. And Joab knows what had happened. And David's justifying it and not really, not looking at it as murder. He does know he's committed adultery. That, that's a big deal to him. And he knows that one. That one he can't get out of. But he's also justifying that. I'm king. I deserve what I want. All right. So he has justified himself up to this point. You know, God, God has not punished me. It's a year later. Even God is forgotten. And we've got to be careful about that. God does not forget. Consequences come. No matter how long he waits for the consequences to come, God will bring the consequences into our life. Here we're at least nine months up to about a year, from at least a year to when the event happened before God brings the consequences. And the cons- true consequences are going to come later than that. But his calling out comes at a, at a year mark give or take a few months and he says you are the man David and all of a sudden David's broken not only does he realize the extent of what he's done he's taken something from one of the poorest of his servants you know he all of a sudden realizes it and Nathan is really pointing out David you had all the wives you had all the stuff and you had to take this man's wife and you arranged to kill him and this is really a big deal David really gets into it And verse 7 says, And the Lord of Israel anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. So he's going over five points of what God has done to bless David. David, God made you king. He delivered you from Saul. He goes, I gave you your master's house. So everything that Saul had, I gave you. And all of your master's wives, I gave you. And gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if that had not been enough, I'd have given you anything else you wanted, David. So he's going down this long list. David, you were the poor man and you were raised up and I gave you all of these things. I gave you the kingdom. I delivered you from Saul. I gave you his wives. I gave you his houses. And if that, and I gave you all of Israel. And if that wasn't enough, I'd have given you anything else you wanted. How many times do we really not understand that God wants to bless us. And this is something that is very important for us to understand. How often do we read the Bible and we see that God wants to bless his children and we forget that we're his children? 
God, you know, I guess you just want to bless everybody else and you wanted to bless them in the Bible, but, but this is just me. God, I just don't understand if you really want to bless me. And I think many times we lose out on blessings because we don't want to say, God, bless me. You know, we think we're too humble or we think we're not, that it'd be prideful for asking God to bless us. But David is being shown, God did all of these, God's saying, I did all of this for you, and if that wasn't enough, I'd have done so much more. How much does God want to bless us? More than we can even imagine. And this is something we need to really get into our heads. God wants to bless us. And I've said this many times. God isn't up in heaven with an eyedropper, you know, saying, how, how little can I give this person? He's ready to dump buckets of blessings over us if we're willing to take and understand that it's for us and for his blessing. He wants to bless us. We look at somebody like George Mueller who is bringing in 10,000 pounds a month, and we don't think of 10,000 pounds as a great, great deal, but in the 1800s, that was a fortune. Okay, if you made 10,000 pounds in, the, in your lifetime, you were, you, were, you were considered very wealthy. And if you were really rich, you would make it in a year or two. George Mueller was spending 10,000 pounds a month supporting his orphanages and the missionaries. And God was blessing him. And he was going, God, thank you. And he was understanding that it was all God's blessings. And how do we look at God? God, you know, God, I really need a little bit of help here. I have a bill. And we may not even trust him for that bill. We get panicky and we get, you know, all, all panicky. How am I going to pay this bill? What am I, I going to do? How am I going to fix this? Been there so many times myself. And yet God's saying, I'll give you so much more. You think I've been blessing you? You know, I want to give you so much more. If, you just, if, it, if that's what it takes to really make you feel blessed, I'm willing to get it to you as long as we don't walk away from him in the blessing. And this is God enumerating, David, I've done all these things for you. And David apparently had forgotten. He saw Bathsheba, he fell into lust, he fell away from God, and then sin drove his actions from that point on. And then he gets done, he gets done killing Uriah, he takes Bathsheba's wife, and he thinks, okay, I got away with it, nobody knows. Now we talked about all the people who know. There's all kinds of palace staff that knows it. There's the people that brought him to her and kept her there overnight and then, then would have escorted her back home. There's the people that, you know, we know that uh, Joab knows. We know that many of the people in the palace know. But he didn't uh, that God. And he did. <laughs> he, I mean, I don't care what he did. He shouldn't He definitely knows that God knows. Yeah. He's just forgotten. How many times do we forget the truth of God when we get into sin? We get in and we just forget all the truths of God that are out there. We forget that God is our, our escape when, when, uh, when, we're trial, when we're tried. And we will come up with such stupid statements, well, I just couldn't help myself. The trial was too great. I couldn't help myself. And God goes back to 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and says, there is no temptation overtaking you, but such as common to man. Okay? Uh, and you go, uh, well, God, you know, I kind of just forgot that you were there. Yep, God says, I'm always there. And God will keep reminding us of the truth. And we'll keep coming up with some really dumb statements because we forget the truth when we walk into sin. And we make all kinds of excuses. And David makes, at this point, he's not making excuses, but we know he had made excuses before that. 
He thinks he's gotten away with it. And a year later, he's being, being attacked and said, ha, David, uh, you. How many times does that happen to us? We think we get some away with something and then something will pop up a year, two years down the road. And it really is the consequence for what we have done in the past. If we have not truly repented, God eventually will bring it out. And it's very important for us to understand, he does not let sin go unpunished. We need to go before God and repent and confess it, and if possible, make restitution. Now, in the case of Uriah, there's nobody to make your restitution to. He's, he's murdered Uriah. I guess he could go make restitution to the family, but the family's not going to accept anything other than his death, you know, because that's the penalty for, for having killed Uriah. But he's got to make restitution, and God says, I've got consequences for you. You know, and David, you're the man, and he enumerates all that God's done for him. This is why we've got to be able to say, God, what have you taught me? What is true? And start trusting God in all situations. Because if we start making excuses and start saying, well, you know, God, I know that your word says this, but my situation's totally different. And we can see this a lot of times, people, when they're getting ready to uh, have divorce, they'll go, well, God, I know you hate divorce, but if, it was, if you really knew my situation and knew how much my spouse has changed, you'd understand that my, my divorce is okay. You know, no, I know there's no adultery involved, but God, if you just knew how much they've changed since I got married, you'd understand that in my case, it's, we're an exception. And God says, I hate divorce. Now, and it could be any sin. You know, David commits adultery. Oh, God, you know, he was just really, really good looking, and I just really couldn't help myself, God, in trying to justify himself and say, you know, hey, if she really wasn't that, you know, if she was just a little, not, little uglier, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't have been drawn to her. You know, if she had been just a little uh, harder to get, you know, if she had just said no, God, I, would, I wouldn't have done all this. And, you know, I'm not saying that he made this, but we know that he did something along those kind of justifications. And just saying, you know, hey, God, yeah, it wasn't my fault. You know, she could have said no. She could have said I'm married and, and walked away from me. You know, it was all her fault. You know, she said yes. Granted, I had her in my room and, you know, uh, you know and I'm the king. But, you know, she could have, she could have said no. Yeah, and he's going, you know, he would have made all those justifications. And here God is saying, no, I'm not accepting any of those justifications. David, you sinned. You sinned. And then he goes even further. Wherefore, in verse 9, have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and then taken his wife to be your wife and have slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. So he's saying, David, you've killed this man. David is not really at this point accepted that he's killed Uriah. He, he kind of knows he's committed adultery. There's no way around that one. You know, he might be trying to justify it with all kinds of, in his mind, justifications. But up to this point, he has not accepted that he's killed Uriah. Yes, he arranged for Uriah to die in battle, but, it, but when the previous chapter, he goes, oh, that's the, that's the fortunes of war in, 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 our, in our plain English. Now, he was at battle. He died. That's just the fortunes of war. I'm taking his wife. And Nathan goes, no, you murdered him. You used Ammon, you used Ammon as your weapon, but David, you murdered him. 
I think at this point, David's going to be a little bit shocked because I do not believe he really feels that he's murdered Uriah up to this point. This point, he's been accused of murder. And this is going to be a shock. I really do think it's a shock to David. I don't, up until this point, I don't believe he feels that he's actually murdered. Now, he's arranged for the death, and he kind of, he knows he's got some guilt involved in this. But I do not believe that he ever believed that he murdered Uriah up until the point that Nathan gets in his face and says, you killed him. You used the sword of, you know, sword of Ammon. You used the battle, but you murdered Uriah. And I think at this point, David is going to be a little shocked because he's never thought, I don't, I don't believe he thought about that as murder up until this point. And this is a new way for him to think. Because David would have been one of those that said, well, I would never murder anybody. I'd go kill him in battle. You know, if in battle I'd kill anybody that was my enemy, but he never really thought of himself as somebody willing and able to murder. And this shocks him. You know, he's, he's arranged for him to die in battle, and he never thought of that as murder, and God says, you murdered the man. And then you took his wife. Yeah, no, he, didn't, he didn't even deal with the adultery. What, in, what really intrigues me about this, God does not even deal with the adultery. It's all about the murder of Uriah. All right? He doesn't really deal with the, with the adultery part of it. And he's going to cause, he's going to take the, the child. I mean, there is a consequence for the adultery. But when he's dealing with David, why? The reason I believe that he's not dealing with the adultery, David knew the adultery part. David accepted he had committed adultery. He needed David to realize that, David, you've really gone far. Look how far down you've done. You did not just commit adultery. You have murdered a man. And that's why I believe that this is in here and he doesn't deal with the adultery. David knew that he committed adultery. There's no two ways about that. But he was trying to justify it and not really, I don't believe he realized up to this point, you had committed murder. How many times has God done that to us? We've done something, and then later on we're reading the scriptures and you're going, oh, uh, you mean what I did back last month, last week, a year ago, that was sin? God, God, you really thought that was sin? I didn't think that was sin. I know that's happened to me on many occasions where I'm reading the Bible and going, oh. Yeah. And, and then you've got to go to God, oh, okay, God, I'm really sorry. I didn't know it was sin, but now I know it's sin. I repent. Please forgive me. All right? And that's important for us to do because if we don't repent when we know it's sin, God will call us out. He will bring it out. David thinks he's gotten away with it. He's kept it hidden for a year, and God calls him out. And because David's king, it's going to have major consequences in the kingdom. And this is, we've said this over and over, our sin's consequences will be directly related to our influence over people. So if you have low influence over people, very few people will know. If you have a lot of influence over people, more people will know. If you're king of the country, the entire nation and actually the whole world gets to know about David, and not only the whole world at his time, but all future generations. I mean, how would you like your sin being, being exposed? 3,000 years from now, people are still talking about your sin. That's bad. You know, or 6,000 years for Adam and Eve's sin. You know, nobody has forgotten their sin. It had major consequences. 
But we have other sins that are out there that are just as bad, that have had long-term consequences. Joseph's brother's sin of selling him into slavery had long-term consequences and knowledge. You know, now, God used it for good, and God's going to use this one for good, just as he does all things. All things work together for good, but there's a consequence that's going to be faced. And David is going to hear these consequences in just a moment, and we're going to see four consequences that God put on him. Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them unto your neighbor, and he shall lay with your wives in the sight of the sun. You did it secretly, but, it will, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put your sin away, for, but you, you put away your sin. You shall not die. Howbeit, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blasphemy. The child also that is born unto you shall surely die. And Nathan departed from the house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. So David gets the penalty. The first penalty is the sword shall never depart from your house. And David has all kinds of trouble with his kids. We're going to see it from his kids and all through the book of Kings and Chronicles. We're going to see all kinds of swords and rebellions and, and murder. Uh, we've got one of his children that, that kills all of the other family. Uh, family except for one child because he's trying to make sure that he gets the, king, the kingdom. We're going to have a queen that rises up and does the same thing. All right? David's house knows great sorrow from death being, being it, and that's part of the penalty. David said, David, God told David, you killed Uriah, you're going to have many times when your family is going to suffer death because of this. His family gets the problem. His family gets the problem. Yeah. How would you like to know that everything that was going on in your family is your fault? You know, it really is anyway, but in David's case, he knows it. Now, he's not going to live to see all of these murders of his children, but, you know, to look back and say, oh, man, all these people died, and it's my fault. My, my sin led to this. Uh, and it says, let's say, and then it goes... And thus saith the Lord in verse 11, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Absalom is going to rise up against him. He's going to have another child that comes up against him and causes problem and tries to kill other of his, of his current brothers while David still lives. You know, all kinds of violence. He says, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall, and he shall lie down with your wives in the sight of the sun. Absalom, when he rebels against David takes David's concubines, sets up a te tent on the top of the palace, and lies with them in sight of Israel to say, I've taken my dad's, I've taken my dad's wife's or concubines. He, David took his, took his wives with him. This happened, and David and God was saying, you did it in secret? 
I'm going to declare it to all the people before the sun. And you know, I can't even picture this going on, but Absalom's up on the palace top rooftop sleeping with all these women. Now granted, nobody's really seeing anything necessarily. The, the palace is some tall building and he's up at the top of the hill. So people aren't seeing a whole lot, but they're seeing him go to, go, going to bed and you know, laying down with these women. And David says, that's going to happen. God says, David, that's going to happen to you because you did it in secret. You didn't confess your sins. I'm going to make your sin known to everybody. And the consequences are your concubines and your wives are going to suffer this indignation. Same rooftop you saw Bathsheba from? Same rooftop you saw Bathsheba from. All right. Same place. Probably the same place he took her to. Except he did it in the room. Not, not on the roof. At this point, David says, hey, I've sinned against God. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry. At this point, I still don't think he's necessarily sorry for what he did. Uh, now, we do know that in this event, shortly after this event, Psalm 51 was written. And it starts, against you and you only have I sinned, God. And uh, done this great thing, created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in with me. You know, cast me not away from your presence, renew, renew a right spirit within me. Uh, so David eventually does truly repent. This particular statement, I'm not sure that David has repented at this point. All right? He's just going, wow, this is pretty bad sin. A sword is going to happen, in, you know, I'm going to have a sword in my family, and my, my concubines, my wives are going to be basically raped on the rooftop. You know, so David's going, hey, this is really, this is really bad. God, I, I'm really sorry. Now, why is he sorry at this point? He got caught, and his family's suffering, and his concubines and wives are going to suffer. Pretty big deal. God is not done <laughs> with, his, with his curse. All right, David says, I have sinned, and Nathan says, and, and Nathan said unto David in verse 13, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Remember we said adultery and murder are both capital offenses. You know, people are probably happy that adultery is not capital offense in our, in our world. But in their day, adultery, because this is how serious God sees it, when two people become one and they break that, break that fellowship and bring a new person into that, into that relationship, God thinks that's a serious event. And David's, and God says, hey, I've given you grace. You're not going to die, David. You deserve it, but I'm giving you mercy. You're not going to die. David is probably being, oh, wow, thank you. He still has heavy consequences. Even when God gives us mercy, there's consequences for our sin. And we've got to keep that in mind. If when I sin, I confess my sin, I repent, there's still usually going to be consequences for it. Now, God may give us grace and not give us those consequences, but there's almost always consequences. How much will he shout it off the rooftop? If I repent without him having to force it, he's not going to shout it off the rooftop, but there will be consequences. And this is something we've got to understand. Verse 14, How be it because of the deed that you have done, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blasphemy. When we sin and the world sees it, it tears down the testimony we have of God. 
and gives the enemy an opportunity to say, well, you know those Christians, they're all hypocrites. And unfortunately, we do a lot of things that can bring that attack to us. They're just a whole bunch of hypocrites. You know, they, you know, they, don't, they don't really care. They don't really believe in God. And this is what God says, David, you made it so that the enemy will be calling us, saying that I'm not strong. I mean, you've given them a reason to, to blaspheme. And then he gives them the worst thing that hits David, the child that, ha- that is born unto you shall surely die. This is how we know we're at least nine months out. The child is born already. So we're nine months from chapter 11 to chapter 12 at the bare minimum. And because he's saying it's a child and not an infant, we're probably looking at a good year, a good solid year, a year and a half. This is not an infant that he's talking about. This is a child. Could possibly be, be translated as infant, but most people believe that this is a young child. Uh, so it's been a while. It's been a while since this event has happened. David thinks he's gotten away scot-free. And God has had all kinds of opportunity to tell David, repent, 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 repent. David doesn't repent, and God says, okay, finally, God, I'm going to make you repent, David. I'm going to make you get involved with this. I'm going to make you understand what you have done. And now, because I am making you understand and calling you out, the consequences are going to be big. So my answer for all of us is don't let the consequences get big. (laughs) Keep your accounts short with God. Confess your sins. Go before God and be very transparent before God and say, God, I've sinned. David is out of fellowship for this whole year. God is not going to let David have good close fellowship with him during this period of time either. And we all know when we are in a place of sin, we may even go to church. But are we really paying attention to what's being said? Are we reading our Bible? Are we praying? We're probably not even going to church when we know that we have sinned and we're not willing to confess it. But even if we are, we don't want to be there because we're so afraid the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or somebody at the church is going to say something that will convict us. You know, uh, so usually we pull away from God altogether when we're in this place of sin. I have a feeling, it doesn't tell me this, but I have a feeling David was not going to the temple, was not offering sacrifices. The last place he wants to be is in the presence of God because he knows the presence of God and he knows the presence of God is going to be convicting. And so here he is, and he says, David, there's a lot going on. The sword's not going to leave your family. Your wives are going to be raped on the palace top, and you've given occasion to the enemy to blasphemy, and this child is going to die. Now, David apparently loves Bathsheba. He's going to make Bathsheba's son king, and he's definitely not the oldest of the sons. He's got, a, he's got four or five wives already, all that have children before Bathsheba even shows, shows up on the, on the stage. And the first one born to her is going to die. And we're going to see the second one is later on going to be made king. So David loves Bathsheba, apparently pretty deeply. Starts out at lust, but he learns to love her. Uh, does it make it right? No. It just, he learns to love, he, he learns to love her. And it says, verse 15, And Nathan departed from the house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. I kind of think this is interesting. 
David is married to Bathsheba at this point, but whose child does it say? The child that Uriah's wife bore. As far as God's concerned, this isn't David and Bathsheba's child. Even though he's the father, the husband was Uriah. And he says, David, I'm taking Uriah's wife's child away from you. And I think that's significant because David did not really have any right to Bathsheba at that point. And God's saying, I'm not giving you the blessing of having a child through her. And you've got to think, Bathsheba is really going to take the blunt of, brunt of this one. It's her child. She gave birth to that child. Now, David was the father, but I understand, you know, when a child is lost, either through a miscarriage or shortly after the birth, it is usually the mother who, who really bears the brunt of that child's death. Even if it is an abortion, the mothers oftentimes have psychological damage done to them because they've killed a life. And there are certain milestones where they really start to understand that they have killed a life. And I've heard it over and over again. And this psychological damage has not gone over with them when they're convinced to give, you know, give up that child. Oh, it's just a blob of tissue. It's nothing. It's no big deal. You, you can get rid of this kid, you know, this, uh, this mistake, you know, easily, and there's no consequences. Until you see your friend send their child to school for the first time, and you realize that your child would have been that old. You know, your child would have been 16 years old learning to drive. Your child would have been 18 years old graduating from high school. Your child would have been, you know, there's all these marks where, you, where your, your friends are celebrating, and all of a sudden it dawns on you, you had a child that would have been able to participate there, and psychologically it affects many women. Not all of them, but many are psychologically scarred by this. This is a death. You know, that happens, and Bathsheba's going to suffer a scar of this. Her child that she carried for nine months has died. The child that she has been nursing is dead and got very sick, and realizing that it's as much her fault as David's. She sinned too. She knew that she sinned. She seems to be getting off scot-free as far as the, the curses go, but she didn't get off scot-free. Her first born or because it seems to be her firstborn it seems like Uriah and her did not have children her firstborn child or their firstborn child dies she is going to suffer the pain of that child dying and I don't fully understand that pain I'm not a mother I've never I've never had it but I do know that even when children when wives suffer a miscarriage it can it can really bother them because they're all looking at what did I do wrong how could, what could I have done differently? Why, why didn't this child get, come to term? And then you abort the children, it's even worse, because you purposely decided to kill that child. And even miscarriages have a real strong impact on a lot of mothers. And here, this is the punishment for Bathsheba. Your child is going to die. The punishment for Bathsheba, more than David. David's going to be sorry. He's lost, he's lost a son. You know, but he has other sons. He has, he's had other sons. He has other wives. And it doesn't seem to impact the man as much to lose that child as it does the mother. I mean, that mother has had that child inside them. There's a bond between mother and child that is very strong, and God put it there. 
Mothers will easily give up their life for the child much faster than fathers would. Mothers have that real strong bond. It is their child. It came out of their body. So this is the punishment, I believe, more against Bathsheba than it is David. And yet it is Bathsheba and David both that are going to suffer this penalty. It seems to upset it quite a bit, though. It does. It, David is going to be, again, it's his fault. And he recognizes it's my fault that this child is dead. Now, he could have really realized it was a two-way street. It's both of their fault. But David's going to take this personally, right? Because he knows that this kid is sick because I committed not just adultery, but I committed murder. And when he's in his right mind, he's really pretty messed up. He's, he's, when, yeah, when David is good, he's good. Yeah. He wouldn't kill Saul. Yeah, he didn't kill Saul. He yeah. didn't, you know. But he did, he did, he was going to ride out against Nabal and, and strike Nabal dead just because yeah. Nabal wouldn't, you know, he got in his wrong mind and he was... He, he was with the enemy getting ready to attack Israel. Okay, David, where, where is your mind? Where are you? I mean, when David gets bad, he gets really bad. It doesn't really tell us when God said that he's a man after, after his own heart. I believe it's all of David's life that is involved in that. Yeah, David's a shepherd doing great things, and then, and then he was... De definitely honored as he was the general for Saul and winning every battle. He was honored as God kept him away from Saul as Saul's chasing him all over the countryside with an entire army. And David, what shouldn't have been that hard to find? He's got, four, he's got 200 plus people with him. It's not like he's that hard to find. And yet God delivers him all the time. He doesn't kill Saul. But when he is wrong, he's very wrong. All right? And remember, Abigail comes out and, you know, she knows that David's angry. David, you know, somehow she gets the message that David's coming to, coming to kill us. And she rides out with a, you know, peace offering and says, hey, don't sin against, you know, don't sin against this. It basically, basically, that's what she said. I know my husband's an idiot. Don't sin against God by killing him. Here, here's the stuff you asked for. All right. And she appeases him. Uh, and then God kills Nabal. So, but each play, each step of the way... David repents and turns back to God and says, I'm sin. You know, I'm, I'm a sinner. I, I'm forgiven. Very quick with Nabal. Not so quick with <laughs> Uriah. He's still trying to hide at this point, And it's at least nine months, if not a year and a half, since this happened. I mean, this is not a short time. When we read the story, it just sounds like, okay, they, they had their affair and then Nathan showed up. But we find out the child's born. So we're talking at least nine months. And because they use the word child rather than infant, it's, so it's been a little bit longer than that. Uh, how long, we don't know. Uh, David had this child long enough to fall in love with the, with the baby himself. Verse 14. And David besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and laid all night upon the earth. And the elders of the house rose and went to him to rise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we, we spoke unto him, and he would not hearken to our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed, his, washed and anointed himself, changed his apparel, and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. 
And then he came to his own house, and when he returned, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. When the servants said unto him, What thing is this that you have done? You did fast and weep for the child while it was yet alive, but when the child is dead, you did rise and eat bread. And David said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, and I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious unto me that the child may live? But now that he is dead, wherefore shall I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return unto me. The child gets sick, and David decides, I'm going to go pray. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to fast. And, you know, the servants are going, you know, trying to get him. You know, David, this child's only sick. Get, get, get up. And, 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 and David says, no, this is my fault. Basically saying, this is my fault. This child is dying because of my sin. I'm going to go repent before God. I'm going to fast. I'm going to beg God for this child's life. Little late. <laughs> well, God has already told him the child's going to die. Well, yeah. But he never knows. But he's hoping. Yeah. He's hoping that God will have mercy on the child. And David's had child. God knows all the stories of God showing mercy on other, other people, other things that deserve attack. You know, and he's hoping that if I beg God enough and I am sorry enough, God might show mercy on me and grace on the child and let the child live. And so he's praying and fasting for a week. All right? And... The servants are kind of really scared. You know, if he's this upset because the child's sick, how upset is he going to be when the child dies? The child's dead. They, they're afraid to go to David. You know, and that kind of rightfully so. You know, look, look, look at what he's doing when the child is sick. How is he going to re What's he going to do to himself now that the child's dead? And they're afraid to talk to They're afraid to tell David, but David looks over to him and he's whispering in, you know, how many times do we really know what's kind of, I mean, we look at over somebody and we're going, uh, I think I know what's going on over there. And so David asks, you know, did the child die? Did the child die? And at this point, they're being asked directly. <laughs> they're being asked directly, not just by the father of the child, but by the king. Uh, yes, David. And I can guarantee at that point, they're like, we got to, you know, what, what's going to happen now? You know, is he going to cut himself? Is he going to commit suicide? You know, what, what is he? He's been, he's been uh, fasting and, and weeping for, for a week. What's, what's he going to do now that the child's dead? Now, why is this? Because what happened when somebody died? You went into mourning. You hired mourners. You wailed and you, and you wept bitterly for this child's death. David surprises him. He gets up. He takes, a, he takes and cleans himself up. He anoints himself and he goes to the temple and he worships. That is definitely not what they expected to happen. Okay, you know, hey, da da David, uh, did you really understand this, David? The child is dead. And he gets up and he goes to worship God, offering sacrifices. And at this point, he's now ready to confess his sins before God and offer the sacrifices. And he goes in and he, and he gets back and he says, okay, now I'm ready to eat. It's been, it's been seven days. Give me some food. Get some food on this table. I'm ready to eat. And, it, and the servants are kind of amazed. This is not what you do when the child dies. <laughs> when somebody dies, you, you, don't, you, don't go, you don't go and worship God. When the child dies, you, you, have a cello, you go into mourning and, and, and for seven days. And so they're going, uh, David, we don't understand this. What, what is the purpose of this? 
And David's answer is kind of interesting. In verse 20 says, While the child was yet alive, I, feast, I fasted and I wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me and let the child live? So he is weeping, crying before God, God, don't take my sin out on this child. This child is innocent. And the child was innocent. You know, it wasn't the child's fault that they, that they committed adultery and, and she got pregnant. It wasn't the child's fault. And the God says, I'm not going to let this go unpunished. And if you want to pick something that's an innocent bystander, this child is an innocent bystander. This child did not deserve to die for anything that child did. This child is dying because David and Bathsheba did not confess their sin before God and have it covered. And so this child dies. That was 22. That was 22. Who can tell? And verse 23 is kind of an interesting statement. Now that he is dead, why should I fast? <laughs> can I bring him back again? And this comes from Job, Job 7, verses 8 and 9, where Job says, hey, when people die, they die. They can't be brought back. And this is a statement that's been brought through all the time. Once you're dead, you're dead. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Huh? Uh, Job 7, 8, 8 through 10. And then in Peter, we're told it is pointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. So we, we know that David kind of realizes the kid's dead. Uh, yeah, I don't expect him to be raised again. Does he understand that God could? I'm sure he understands that God could. But he's not expecting that child to be raised again. He then goes on, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. This verse is used by, more, by most of the people who would believe that all children go to heaven that are underneath the, a certain age. And I'm going to buy that they do. I mean, I can't prove it. This is the only verse that talks about that, that David says, hey, I can't go to him. I've got to go. He can't come back to me. I've got to go to him. And I know that God is just. If you have a child who has never had a chance to commit a sin and repent and confess Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, I believe that God will take mercy on them and will take them to heaven. But this is the only verse, and it's hard to make a doctrine on one verse. Don't make a doctrine on one verse. So a child that is miscarried, a child that is aborted, a child that dies before they have a chance to make any cognitive decision for God, I believe that they probably will be taken to, to God in heaven because that is just mercifulness from God. I will not take a hard stand on that. It is not like many Christians and the Catholics say, it is not 10 years old or 12 years old that they, will, that they can sin up to that point and be forgiven. When you are conscious of the fact that you have sinned and that you deserve, that you, deserve, that you need a savior, you are accountable for your sin. Now, what age is that from, for children? It may vary for each child. I've known three and four-year-olds that definitely know that they have sinned and they need a savior. I have seen people that haven't been raised up in the church that might not know, understand that up, up until six or seven. What age that is, I don't know. I can guarantee it's not 10, 12 years old because that's way too old. People know very clearly that they are a sinner long before that. This child is only about one, 
one, one and a half, or two, probably definitely doesn't know that it's a sinner. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you and, and look at your word. We ask you to bless us, Lord. Help us to keep our accounts short, to confess our sins and to you and have forgiveness. It doesn't take a loud trumpet to before us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.